So last week we talked about uh, the the blind man and um, him being healed by Jesus Christ. And we progress in the Gospels. Uh, I was talking with Kent on Friday night. He asked me what I was going to speak about. And my goal in the season of Lent, and this isn't my invention, but during Lent it's helpful uh, sometimes to focus on, once again, the powerful works of Jesus Christ in him demonstrating his authority over sickness, over death, because in the time of Lent, we notice in our lives things that ought not to be there, and we also notice the lack of things that ought to be there. And when we see these things, whether it's our inability to even uh, maintain our heart's desire to keep a fast, or we become neglectful of our Bible reading or prayer times, we we can often despair and think to ourselves, it's impossible. And that's why I think it's helpful to see in the Gospels Jesus breaking into situations that seem completely impossible. That's what we talked about last week. That's what we're talking about today. And it actually is the case that this story is an intentional build on uh, John 9. Um, And I'm going to bring that out a little bit today, hopefully not reviewing too much, but but rather just uh, noting it enough. I think that the scriptures are more like wine than they are like water. And although the Bible calls them water in 1 John, uh, and, and they say husbands should wash their wives with the water of the word, the Bible is water to our souls, but it's also like wine. And the best wines take time to appreciate and it requires a palate that is distinct and distinguishing. That is, if you just take a bottle of wine that you bought, let's say it's $60, and you just chug it, you are a fool. <laughs> You're a fool, mostly because you could probably have bought that same bottle for $12 at Trader Joe's. But the, the subtleties that exist in wine and in, or, you know, let's say you don't like wine, you, you don't believe you should drink wine, cheese or coffee or cigars. If you if you don't like wine, you probably don't like cigars. These I don't like cigars myself. These things take time to appreciate. And the scripture is like that. I'm of the opinion that the scripture, the gospels, the entire corpus of scripture itself is the greatest literary masterpiece that has ever been wrought on the earth and is the greatest masterpiece that ever can be wrought. And it's my opinion that as a believer, you should develop a taste for the way that the scriptures uh, repeat themselves in in such a way as to note the subtleties of of, uh, poetry, and that using your view of those things, you will see a greater view and glory of God, and that will transform into you spiritual worship that you uh, therefore praise God for, Uh, just like you would enjoy a glass of wine or a piece of cheese or a cigar. So, I want to talk today a little bit about the literary repetition. This isn't something new to us. If you were here when we were talking about Abraham about four to six weeks ago, uh, we covered it then. Um, it's my it's my opinion that the repetition is uh, in the scripture is the greatest tool uh, apart from analogy and types. Literary repetition is the greatest tool that the scripture has in communicating and indicating meaning and beauty. Uh, so we're going to look at that. Then we're going to move on to see uh, God's glory. We're going to note its parallel with John 9 last week. We're going to look at this perplexing love that Jesus has um, 
concerning Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and how that love is actually a beautiful love that surpasses even human love that we uh, can comprehend or even display to our brothers and sisters. I want to look at Jesus's repetition of his uh, insistence that he is the light of the world. Again, building on what we learned last week. I want to look at the two interactions between Mary and Martha. Martha often gets a really bad rap in the scriptures because we remember the time where Jesus went and Mary sat at his feet and, and Martha just, you know, is kind of only remembered for that. And I think she's done a disservice. I think her faith in this passage is on display. We're going to look at Mary's extreme sorrow, not that she didn't have faith, but what even that sorrow did in demonstrating who Christ is and who Christ can be to us. Uh, if we see Mary and Martha contrasted in the other story where Mary sits at Jesus's feet and Martha is busy, we create this, uh, we can create this false dichotomy where this is the revenge of Martha over and against Mary. But I think that this is actually not just a, uh, a good statement about Martha's condition, but also a good statement in Mary's sorrow of the condition that Christ enters into in encountering us in our hearts. And then finally, I want to look at the miraculous saving work of, that Jesus does to bring Lazarus back from the dead and what that tells us about our God who can do the impossible. So, as I mentioned earlier, historical narrative in the authentic form, that is, the gospel writer encountered a sto- an event and writ it, wrote it down uh, in exactly the way that God wished for him to write it, and that God in his orchestration of these events is not just causing events to take place, which would then later be reinterpreted and written down by a gospel writer, but also that these things are done not just in the orchestration, but also in the way that the Holy Spirit led and and guided the writers themselves. And so, in this view of Scripture, you don't just have random happenings that were then transcribed, like someone taking a video camera on an event and, you know, accurately describing things. You also have someone who is orchestrating these things behind the scene, and that's something we've talked about before. Uh, These things happen in a way that recapitulates or tells again the entire story. That word recapitulate is a word I'm trying to build into our vocabulary. What it means is to re-experience and summarize the main points. And it's my opinion, as as I've said earlier, that John 11 recapitulates or it re-experiences the ideas in John 9. And with that regard, it's helpful to us. So last week, we saw Jesus as the light of the world who opens up the blind eyes. And this week, we see Jesus as the one who has authority over death. He says in this passage that he is the resurrection and the life. So not only is Jesus the light of the world, this passage rebuilds on that light, that idea that Jesus is the light of the world, but not only is he light, he also is life, and that's what is happening in this passage. The way that ideas are referenced and develops creates a beauty that serves to heighten our awareness of God's magnificence. What I mentioned before about wine is the, the beauty that you experience in any creative art, whether it's painting, wine, cheese, literature, photography, music, is all about theme and repetition. I'm reminded of of um, the book by um, an author I don't remember, Gertel Escher Bach, Uh, And in that book, he describes how all Western music is built on an idea of theme and repetition. Later today, my wife and I are going to go with my parents to um, 
the Masonic Temple, not to participate in their worship service, but to uh, simply hear a wonderful work of art called Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And all of you know what Beethoven's Fifth Symphony sounds like because of theme and repetition. What does it sound like? Bum, 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 bum. It's the greatest element in Western music uh, in terms of establishing an idea of theme and repetition. Almost all dramatic movement or music uh, builds on a, a movement that, that Beethoven established. Now, he obviously wasn't the first one, but he's the most notable example in our modern mind. And so when you think of any other dramatic fugue or or you know, empirical procession kind of music, uh, of of course, the Star Wars music, dun, 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 dun. I mean, it, it evokes the idea of theme, repetition, and notes of, of subtle reference. And that's what this passage does. If your mind is trained to look for those things while you're reading the scripture, I promise you, scripture will be less boring. Uh, if you have an ability to appreciate the way that God, through his his, historical narratives, through unfolding events, also caused them to be literarily beautiful, or literally beautiful, uh, then you'll, you'll see beauty there and you'll appreciate it. And seeing beauty, you'll want more. And that's what I believe the scripture can be to you. That's what I've discovered it to be for me as, as uh, people in my life have trained me to read it that way. So, so that's what takes place in this passage. And, um, I think it will help you understand what God is saying through this passage a little bit better. So last week we we began, if you remember, the disciples, they asked Jesus, why was this man born blind? And Jesus uh, kind of flips their understanding concerning uh, why the man was born blind. They ask whether it was that man's sin or his parents, and he says, neither, but rather that, that God would be glorified, that the Son of Man would be glorified through the uh, healing that was going to take place. And in this way, God's perspective is never our perspective. In, in, in this way, we get lost, as it were, looking for the causes instead of looking for the purpose. This happens in, in our lives every day. Jesus responds with the perspective of God, shattering the framework for the cause of the blindness. In the same way, in this story, Jesus doesn't have his disciples questioning, but rather there's a, a piece of news that comes. The Mary and Martha, the sisters, send news to Jesus, and when the, the news shows up, Jesus isn't questioned. He just offers up a statement in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Isn't this often the case that you and I, we get sidetracked looking for the cause rather than finding out the purpose for something in our life, for a difficulty, for a pain? If we're seeking to wield control over our lives and be our own master and direct our purpose, then we will often spend time looking for causes so that if we could just discover the cause, we might never step into that hole again, right? We, we try to figure out, okay, I, I you know, faced difficulty or I faced uh, you know, a tragedy. What was I doing wrong in my life so I can maximize my pleasure and minimize my pain? Rather than perhaps what God might want you to do is follow Christ and hear him speak to you so that you can walk through the pain with purpose. Might that be a, a very helpful remedy to us in the midst of terrible circumstances? Jesus here does not 
talk about causes, but he talks about purpose. This happened for a reason. Now, that sometimes is unsatisfying, but the Christian life is often unsatisfying. We don't know why certain things happen, but God talks about a peace that passes understanding. That's what Jesus comes to give you. That faith of trusting Jesus in the midst of not understanding your circumstances is necessary for every believer in Christ. For every believer in Christ, if, if he or she wishes to not shipwreck their faith, must be comfortable with trusting God in the midst of not understanding the purpose for their suffering. And that's what takes place in this passage. Often God wants to break into our situations and bring bring out a more glorious outcome, yet we, in the midst of trying to control our lives, prevent his hand from moving because we don't wish to hear his word. In this passage, however, uh, Martha and Mary, they simply are just given the option of waiting until Jesus shows up. Jesus then goes into this amazing statement um, about, about the Son of God being glorified through it, and that forms the justification for the next two verses that the gospel writer uh, puts down. God's perspective, as I mentioned, is often very strange to us. We look for causes. He brings out the purpose. And yet in the midst of that, we're totally surprised by what, what uh, we hear. Jesus hears that Lazarus is about to die, and then he decides to do something about that. John 11, 5 through 6, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Now, I think that at this point, if you've heard me preach before, you've heard me say that the Bible has connecting words that indicate purpose and explain the meaning. Now, this is one of the more perplexing uh, sentences in, in this chapter. Now, Jesus loved Martha, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he waited. <laughs> he didn't, go, that's like calling the fire department. When the fire department heard that your house was burning down, they waited. <laughs> Jesus is waiting intentionally. Now, when Jesus loved Mary, so he waited longer. He intentionally stayed two more days knowing full well what would be taking place in order that his power and glory might be more readily seen. Now, this may, if you hear me postulate that or or assert that, you may say, oh, wait, this is, so Jesus is uh, in verse four saying the purpose of Lazarus' illness is so that the Son of Man may be glorified. And then he moves from the, the his goal of he being glorified in the eyes of his disciples and Lazarus and Mary and Martha and all who would see it. And then he moves from that to the gospel writer mentioning love. And so if Jesus is intentionally staying so that he would be more glorified, wouldn't we, we be accurate in accusing Jesus of being full of pride? He's doing something intentionally so that he would be glorified. You and I, we would consider that to be ridiculous that if you are wielding and orchestrating and scheming in order so that you would get more glory out of a situation. Is it right to accuse Jesus of pride? Or another way, another way to say it is, is God selfish in wanting to be glorified in the eyes of his people? This is one of the most common theological questions when someone encounters a, a Jonathan Edwardsian uh, type of theology that says, uh, or you can pick this up in the theology of John Piper, that God is glorified in his people to the degree that they are satisfied or enjoy him 
Uh, and, and in that way, God is loving by glorifying himself in the eyes of his people. How do you reconcile that problem, uh, which is a deep theological, con- theological conundrum? Here we see a profound argument for God's righteousness, not his pride, but his righteousness in disclosing himself in such a way that his disciples, the people he's around, uh, have a more manifest vision of, of God. It's my opinion that this is an indefensible or uh, in, indestructible argument that weaves itself throughout the whole scripture. God is a truly loving God, and be, he bestows good gifts and graces upon those he loves. Amen? We all agree with that? If that's the case, we build on that idea that God in himself, God in his person, is supremely valuable and desirable so that even his words are better than gold. Psalm, a bunch of the Psalms, Psalm 119. Uh, if that's true, if those two ideas are true, that God is an amazing, glorious God who loves his people and gives them good gifts, and that he himself in his person, apart from anything that he, he has created, is the supremely valuable entity or essence in the universe, that he himself is the most precious thing, then it must follow that the best gift that God could bestow upon his people is the gift of himself. And that's what happens. That is the point of this passage. John eleven fourteen through 15, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Don't you love the obvious things that happen in these? Jesus is saying, he's fallen asleep. The disciples are, Lord, if, if he's asleep, he'll probably wake up. He's either sleeping or taking a nap. And then Jesus says, Lazarus has died. <laughs> I, I just love the, the flatness of that, of that phrase. Um, Verse 15, here we are again, and for your sake, I am glad. So Jesus, in, in the midst of his motive that he would be glorified, he also is thinking about the disciples. He says, for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. He says, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then if you remember the time after the resurrection that, Jesus, that Thomas says, I will not uh, believe unless I can put my finger in the holes in his hands and touch him in his side, right? What is the next phrase in the, in this passage? Verse 16, it's not on the slides. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, he's there for a reason. What, what that mention of Thomas is, and then reference to later, is that the disciples are only believing Jesus if, if they see him, if they apprehend him if they perceive him. And that is how we encounter Christ. That's how we perceive him. That's how we begin to believe in Jesus Christ is by encountering him. And it is through the scriptures, through his spirit, through his people that we encounter Christ. So Jesus is glad that Lazarus has died so that his disciples may see his power and more readily be quick to believe. That's what's going on in this passage. So Jesus builds on what he had said in the passage, uh, concerning the, the man who was born blind in this idea of the light of the world. John eleven eight through 10, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Again, we, here we have the disciples uh, being, uh, being used to ask Jesus a question, bring out the understanding that Jesus walks in in the midst of his miraculous ministry. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. 
But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is intentional worded, uh, language and wording to evoke the same meaning that he said in John 9. What did he say in John 9? Uh, Jesus' response here is to their caution is a faith-filled response. It's one that's confident to the point of almost bravado, if you could accuse the Son of Man of bravado. Of course, I'm not doing that, but it is an extremely confident phrase. They wish for him not to go, yet he said in John 9 that he must work the works of him who sent him when, while it is still day. For night is coming when no one can work. What is he saying? He's saying that the Pharisees are gathering more and more, and, and their blindness is like nighttime. And the blindness that they that the Pharisees bring with them is is going to actually determine the outcome of this situation. Verse 10 again, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What did he what did Jesus say? If if your eye is full of light, then your whole being will be full of light. But if your eye is darkness, then darkness is in you. So here, Jesus is building on his teaching and referencing John 9. He's basically saying that he, Jesus and his disciples, are those who walk by day, who can see, and who will prosper. They won't stumble, right? Your word is a light unto my uh, uh, feet, and, and uh, a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. What, what is Jesus saying in this passage? He and his disciples are those who walk and don't stumble. Their plans are going forward. But even the caution that the disciples ex- express concerning the Jews uh, attempting to, to stone and kill Jesus, that plan will come to naught because those people are blind. Jesus is saying they're the Jews who seek to kill me, uh, they're blind, they walk at night, and they will stumble and their plot will utterly fail. That is the the poetry which is necessary to understand Jesus' response. Because if you don't understand that, it just sounds like Jesus is completely uh, out there. Uh, Lord, you know, uh, are you going to go back there and uh, and and you know the the Jews are trying to kill you? But then he responds with not a reference to, "Oh, I'm I believe that I'm safe. I'm going to be okay." He responds with a parable right? I mean, this is how you need, this is the, these are the tools needed to understand the scriptures. Again, are there not 12 hours in the day? I mean, that's ridiculous compared to, Rabbi, the Jews are going to kill you. And then he starts talking about walking around and day and night and being in darkness. It just doesn't make any sense without a parabolic understanding or interpretation. So, when when Jesus arrives, uh, verse 17, When Jesus arrives, Martha goes out to meet him. Uh, Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, Martha here is is telling Jesus plainly the truth. That's true. If if Jesus would have been there, uh, then Lazarus would have not died. We know that because in in verse 15, he says, I was glad for the disciples' sake because I wasn't there so that you would see my glory more manifestly. And then Martha continues, But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now, this is is Martha's faith in the midst of a terrible circumstance. She first tells the truth. She doesn't disrespect Jesus. She doesn't put on a show before God and say, God, terrible stuff's going on in my life, but I'm ignoring it. Martha respects Jesus. She respects him enough to be honest with him. She encounters and 
and tells of and expresses her sorrow in the midst that her brother had died. And yet, in the midst of that sorrow, expresses deep and profound faith. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's lost her brother, she's heartbroken, and yet Jesus responds to her, her expression with a promise. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Look at what's happening here. Jesus responds to her sorrow and grief and faith with a promise, an invitation. Your brother will rise again. What does she do? She, she in, a, in a sense, short circuits the promise by saying a, a theological truism. She knows that it, in, in Jewish eschatology of that day, it, it was understood by, uh, by the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, but all the people of, of Israel, that there was going to be a great and final resurrection at the end of the age, which is what we still believe and the New Testament plainly teaches. And so she responds to Jesus's invitation with theological truth. Isn't this what happens in our life often when God is bringing us into a situation or wanting us to go a particular direction and we just kind of bank on what we know? But Jesus is inviting Martha out onto the waters to a place that she doesn't know. Jesus is offering the resurrection that he's going to demonstrate. And in the midst of her responding with theological truth, he brings out a better theological truth. Yes, there will be a great end time eschatological resurrection from the dead, but he is going to demonstrate to her through his teaching and what he's about to do that he is the cause of that great resurrection from the dead. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Now, that's a hard, that's a hard thing for, for Martha to integrate with her understanding. Her brother had just died. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you'll never die. And yet her brother has just died. If she says yes, she may be... Uh, you know, just too quickly saying yes. But if she takes a minute and thinks about it, maybe she has to reconcile, did my brother know the Lord? Yet he died. Plainly, we can see that Jesus is not talking about physical death. Um, I believe the Greeks have a word for physical death that's uh, descriptive of, of your body dying, and it's called thanatos. But, but Jesus here is not speaking about bodily death. He's talking about eternal death, which is why earlier he said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. See, there are two types of death in Jesus's mind and teaching here. There is a death of the body and there is a death of the soul. And what Jesus is going on to say is that after someone dies who believes in me, he'll rise again. And Jesus himself, his person, is the cause for their rising at the last day. In the midst of this, uh, Jesus then goes on to encounter um, Mary. Uh, Martha finishes up here. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And yet he's already in the world, and yet he's coming into the world. Martha is basically saying, okay, I understand what you're saying. You're saying that the things that we hope for in the future are being worked out even now as a precursor, that what you're about to do is a foreshadowing of the great final resurrection at the end of the age. Mary Mary is then encountered by Jesus after he calls for her, and in the midst of this situation with Mary, we see that she 
unlike her sister, has, is overcome with, with sorrow. Mary is expressing her hurt and doesn't offer any sort of sign to Jesus about a faith concerning him uh, going and, and remedying the situation. John 11, uh, 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. That's true. Would not have died. That's true. That's exactly what Martha said. That's exactly what the disciples uh, were encountering when they were discussing with Jesus. If Jesus would have been there, Lazarus would have not died. So, is Jesus guilty of Lazarus' death? No, not at all. But in the midst of that cause versus purpose debate, Jesus has a better plan. She expresses no, no hope that Jesus can intervene, and yet even in this, Jesus does not fit within our expectations. These gospel passages where we see Jesus saying completely uh, beautiful and to the natural mind ridiculous things, disarming situations, demonstrating his power, the, the gospel writers are all about explaining to the readers that Jesus does not fit your preconceived notions of who God is. At another time, we see Jesus uh, getting angry with his disciples concerning their lack of faith. But Jesus is a good shepherd, and he knows the heart of Mary, where Mary's heart is towards God, and he knows that she is simply overcome by grief. He does not respond to Mary's lack of faith and being overcome with grief and then just slap her around, shame her, and condemn her for not having faith. He actually goes on and encounters and enters into her grief and sorrow concerning her brother's death. Truly, he fulfills the law that Paul would later lay down in Romans 14, weep with those who weep. Jesus is demonstrating his righteousness as a good shepherd, as a good friend. After touching the hearts of Mary and Martha, Jesus then moves on to wield power over death and demonstrate his authority. And it's at this point where we begin to see the God of the impossible break into the situation. Then Jesus, John eleven thirty eight, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Little bit of math here. Four minus two is what? Two, or another way, two plus two is four. Jesus waited two more days after hearing the news that Lazarus was ill. So what happened? Okay. It's possible if you want to get, uh, you know, Einsteinian here and talk about trains and lights and stuff, that the messengers went to Jesus and they left when Lazarus was sick, but while they were traveling, he was dead. Or it's possible that the journey took a day. You can work out the math on your own. But what this is demonstrating is Jesus knew that Lazarus was basically dead when he was hearing that Lazarus was sick. So he stayed two extra days. So it would be the case that Lazarus's body would go through decomposition. If you're dying in a hospital, you have a good chance of a defibrillator being around and they can bring you right back. But I guarantee that if you were dead for two or three days, no amount of shocking will bring you back to life. They have not yet found a defibrillator that can like pull your spirit back and quicken your body. Jesus here is intentionally waiting so that Lazarus would be really dead really dead. His body would be going, and that's why the gospel writer includes this phrase, 
saying from Martha saying, Lord, there will be an or an odor for at this time he has been dead for four days. Again, four days of death, Jesus waited extra too. So Jesus knew that he was dead uh, when he just was told that he was sick. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus is now going to demonstrate that not only is he Lord over death, but he's also Lord over decomposition, and that he is not only going to bring Lazarus back to life, but also restore his body in such a way that there is no doubt left concerning his authority over not just the physical universe, but also spiritual matters, bringing back to life a person who had died and was resting. This is an amazing feat that God does in the, in our midst, and it's intentional that he waits for a number of days uh, concerning this. Um, if if you have the stomach and, uh, and you wish to go on Wikipedia, I would encourage you, uh, if you have the stomach, to go take some picture or take a look at some of the pictures of uh, necrosis flesh or necrotitis. Um, I needed a John and Leah to help me with this phrase. They're not here. I think it's necrotosis fasciitis, but there's an actual, actually a thing that happens to your body once you die, where your cells begin to break down, and uh, that, that you know, cell wall by cell wall, these bacteria start to invade and destroy your, destroy your body. Not only does Jesus bring Lazarus back from the dead, he also completely heals his body uh, so that he can live again. Now, this is amazing. Jesus is demonstrated as Lord over all, not just death, but also the physical universe. And we believe that one day he's going to return and bring us back to life as well. All those who fall asleep in him will be raised on the last day. And not only that, Jesus demonstrating these things also indicates not only he has he resurrected Lazarus from the dead, but he's dealt with the grief and, and sorrow in the hearts of Mary and Martha. Not only that, fulfilled them and placed full faith and and. Uh, manifest glory in their midst by performing this miracle. And so we see Jesus in this passage, not just quickening a man's life, but also being one who can quicken our souls. And that's what we encounter and need to see in Lent. Jesus is not just someone who can bring someone back to dead, but he can even resurrect our dead hearts that are oftentimes very much like the Pharisees. What did Jesus say the Pharisees had? They had hearts that they were like whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inwardly it's a cave and they're filled with terrible dead rotting things. That is what the story of Lazarus teaches us. And it is by it is through seeing Jesus and beholding the beauty of what he does in not just resurrecting someone, but also rescuing the hearts of Mary and Martha from sorrow and, and a lack of faith and filling his disciples with full faith concerning his authority and glory as the Son of Man. It is seeing those the beauty in these types of passages that allow us to begin to experience God and see him as he is. So with that, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Jesus, for the uh, wonderful, magnificent work that you've done. Not only are you able to heal the blind man who no one had ever healed before in the history of the world, but you also bring back from the dead. And not only bring back from the dead, you cause life to be there. Lord, we're, we're reminded 
of Second Kings four and five, these passages where you tell someone to where uh, Elijah had uh, Elisha had told someone to wash and and had resurrected the Shunammite son. Lord, we we do ask that you would cause us to see Jesus as being greater than all the Old Testament prophets, as being the one who fulfills all the prophecies to your people. But not only that, Lord, the the one who fulfills the greatest longings and and urges in our heart that you would be for us God in the flesh and that we would comprehend your wonderful uh, friendship that you display through these types of passages. Lord, we ask that you would grant us spiritual sight that when we read your word, when we go about our day, when we consider the impossible situations in our life, that we would not despair, but that we would remember the story of Lazarus, that we would remember how you time and again break into impossible situations and bring a blessing. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to have great faith such that we would trust you and not seek to control our lives, but that we would rest in your timing when you take a few extra days to show up, when you decide to to wait so that your glory would be more manifest. We we ask, Lord, give us the patience to encounter and to wait patience, patiently. Lord, we do ask that through taking communion today that we would experience you in a greater way, that we would uh, taste of you and, and taste of your goodness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.